time in Michigan, three film lovers decided to see movies on Tuesday because tickets are cheap. Then they decided to talk about it. The result, the second day film podcast. What's up, film fans? How's it? This is, of course, the second day film podcast, the official podcast of the second day film club. It is August 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, the founder of the Second Day Film Club, joined today by the wise one, Mr. Mike Nichols, back on the pod for the first time since January. Welcome back, my good sir. It's been too long. It has been too long, my friend. Thanks for having me and always uh, being polite to invite me, even though like I take forever to respond to your texts about yeah. inviting me and stuff. So. Yeah, that's, Sorry a, about that. that's okay. You're a, you're a busy man, right? You mm-hmm. got work and uh, you do like improv and stuff, so you're a busy man, right? So I don't blame you too much for, you know... Leaving me hanging for a week. I'll be uh, I'll be on here before next January. Let's hope so. Let's. I'll, I mean, I'll what is it? It's back. August right now. Let's yeah. definitely make it uh, less of a gap than what seven. Yeah. <laughs> seven months. This the snow was on the ground. Uh, I think that's about how time. long it took for me to respond to the text. It was like, <laughs> hey man, saw you sent this six months ago. Sorry about that. Uh, I've just been crazy busy. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, in case they missed the last episode, since it was a long time ago, why don't yeah. you? Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with movies. I mean, you love movies, right? Yeah, uh, I've been watching movies since I can remember. Um, studied film in uh, college a little bit and even got into grad school for screenwriting. Um, and uh, just recently discovered, actually, I want to plug this, Letterboxd. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I think you are. The new talk. emerging trend yes, that's been indeed. around for eight years or so. Yeah, something. but it's basically a movie cataloging site <clears throat> where you can, like, you know, put out all the movies you've seen. I, not to brag... But I've seen over a thousand. Wow! And uh, that's nothing compared to like I, you're probably at least in the two thousands. I I have. I mean, I've probably seen two thousand movies, mm-hmm. but I use IMDb as my sort of catalog because that's okay. just where I started. So I think I've rated like sixteen hundred movies on IMDb. Wow! I got into Letterboxd a yeah. little bit, but I was just like, I've already got so many movies deep on IMDb. Okay, yeah. I'm just like, I might as well just keep doing this because then I just have to like transfer all my ratings to Letterboxd. So I know? don't have an IMDb account. I should get one. Yeah, you should. I mean, I think Letterbox is a little more uh, interactive. It's more mm-hmm. of like a social media than mm-hmm. IMDb. You don't really get to interact too much with other fans on IMDb, whereas Letterbox, you can kind of check out people's lists and, you know, keep more of a running catalog. But like I said, I just, I think I started working with IMDb like way back in, you know, like my eighth grade year in high school. Or, wow. So, you know, I just kept going with it, you know. Eighth so. grade's not high school, man. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we do things different in Catholic. No, no, you're right. Uh, eighth grade is not high school. You're right. Uh, it was actually probably more like seventh grade. So I guess we're talking about the awkward middle school years yeah. here. So anyways, uh, glad to have you here, Mike. Thank uh, you. Coming up on the show today, Mike and I are going to be discussing what we've been watching in the world of film and TV um, if you're if you're paying attention, I gave you a little hint as to which one of those films uh, will be. Uh, but before we do that, I want to tell you how to get in touch with us. Uh, Facebook is the main social media we use. You can find us if you search Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, give us a like or a star review on there. SoundCloud and iTunes is where our old episodes are. Um, so if you want to go back and listen or hear Mike's debut, uh, from way back in January, I think we talked about like Spider-Man and Aquaman and stuff back then. I, I, g- so, I gave Robin Hood an F. <laughs> yeah, so Robin Hood, the Robin Hood, uh, movie that came out last year, which I still have not seen and probably never will, yeah. thanks to Mike's sterling review. Um, but yeah, so Facebook, uh, SoundCloud and we're also on Twitter, that's at Second Day Film, and Instagram at Second Day Film Podcast. Um, so basically check out social media, type it in the search bar. Um, and you should find us. Um, there's going to be full spoilers ahead for the movies we talk about. Um, when we get to the TV shows, we'll try and be a little bit more general and dance around the edges because um, they're all shows that have come out this year or at least within the last year. Um, so we don't want to spoil them too much. All right, so I'm just going to jump right in here uh, as we start the show today. Um, and the first film I'm going to talk about uh, is a beloved story. It is The Lion King. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. We, we appreciate yeah. that here on the Second Day Film Podcast. Yes. Are those the actual lyrics, though? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this is the live-action remake to the 1994 animated film of the same name. Um, probably my favorite animated film of all time if i thought about it the original lion King. it's it's easily one of their disney's best ever for yeah. sure so uh this is a remake the uh plot summer on imdb 
You already know, but after the murder of his father, a young lion prince flees his kingdom, only to learn the true meaning of responsibility and bravery. As I said, this movie is directed by John Favreau. Um, it stars Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar, John Oliver as Zazu, James Earl Jones reprising his role as Mufasa, uh, John Connie as Rafiki, Elfrey Woodward, Woodard is Sarabi. Um, who we got? Who else? Keegan Michael Key is in this as uh, as um, Kamari. He's one of the the goofy. Uh, Oh, the hyenas. hyenas. Yeah. Uh, we have Eric Andre, Seth Rogen is Pumbaa, Billy Eichner is Timon. So uh, a really talented voice cast here. Yeah, Beyonce, of course, I forgot to mention, is uh, Nala. And Donald Glover plays as, as Simba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As the main character, we don't want to forget him either. Um, so yeah, we all know this story. Um, it's one of the timeless tales of all time. This is, of course, the third live-action Disney remake this year, um, following Dumbo and Aladdin, which uh, I've uh, have, have both been reviewed on the podcast before. Um, before I get into my actual review of this, I just want to say something. Um, so here in the Second Day Film Podcast, we watch movies at Celebration Cinema. It's the regional chain of theaters here in West Michigan, and I love it. It's it's mostly fabulous. They mostly do a good job. One thing I've noticed with some of these family films, though, is the sound really, really sucks. Like, hmm. uh, and I don't know if it's just bad luck with individual theaters, or if they're just kind of turning it down to be sensitive to little kids' ears or whatever, but it really stinks. Like, first of all, little kids are loud, so having the volume low makes it even more of a challenge to hear, and especially with a film like The Lion King, which is in part fantastic because of the music... Uh, one one of the best parts of the original animated classic is the first shot, the sun rising with the the African chant yeah. that Mike uh, so uh, gracefully. Uh, you want to give us a, an encore here, or are you, are you African chanted out? Is it? A... I I don't want to destroy childhood so okay. more than I already have. Okay. So, anyways, just a side note. I just found it annoying. Like, wh why are you turning the volume way down? It. We come to a movie theater to be in a you know. Uh, a senses-focused environment. So that just kind of annoyed me a little bit. Anyways, some things I liked and disliked about The Lion King. Uh, of course, I was very nervous coming in. Um, I didn't want them to tarnish the legacy of the original. Um, and this movie was uh, a little bit of a letdown for me, I have to say it. Um, it's essentially a shot-for-shot -shot remake. Um, it lacks originality in my opinion. Um, and I, I, I get that you want to recapture the magic of the original. I get that you want to sort of expose a great story to a whole new generation, so you're not going to mess with the story that much. But this just felt like lazy filmmaking. There's virtually no nuance or imagination at all. The, the characters are, almost, are saying the same lines. The shots are almost shot for shot. Like, I think there's room in the Lion King story where they could have <clears throat> expanded at least a little bit or at least been a little bit, um, you know, creative in the way they went about things. So, um, you know, it, these other live-action remakes, they, they've, they've done that. They've added some things. They've added songs or characters or they've um, sort of put their own twist on things. And I just felt like that was completely lacking in this Lion King, and that was really, really disappointing to me. Where do you think they could have added something? Like, what could they have developed more that wasn't there in the original? Like the, um, like the Mufasa Scar relationship? Maybe, or? yeah. The Mufasa Scar. I mean, they basically are. They do the same thing. It's a very limited relationship. You know, maybe some of the dynamics as to why Scar is like this outcast. Maybe some more dynamics as to what it is actually like to rule the kingdom <clears throat> from Pride Rock. You know, this this was basically the animated film regurgitated over again. And for that reason, I think you have to sort of question why this was necessary. You know, you could say that about all these live-action Disney remakes, yeah. but at least with those, you had a film that was going from animated to actually live-action. This movie was from animated to a different kind of animation with this motion capture, photorealistic animation that they're going for. So with like Aladdin, for example, you take the, the cartoon and you bring it to live-action, you get this completely different flavor and feel to it. With this Lion King, it's just a different form of animation. So it, it really is in danger of kind of being almost a money grab, you could say. 
And uh, <laughs> you could, yeah, many have. I would say. <laughs> yeah, but I did hear that the original animators were not happy. Like yeah. they felt kind of resentful that they remade it, and they said it would hurt to watch. Mm-hmm. I saw a couple of articles where they said that. Oh, so, I read that as well, and, it, and it's because there's no imagination behind it. It's it's all. Um, it's literally the same shots. Yeah. And if I was same an animator, angles, same yeah. Anime, yeah. And if I was an animator from the original masterpiece, that would piss me off. You know. Did it make you go back and rewatch the original? Uh, I've seen it so many times. I yeah. don't. I mean, I it's just fresh in my mind. So no, I haven't watched the original. I mean, I think I did a couple months ago. Um, it was just on like I don't know, like free form when they had their well, <laughs> all Disney weekends. Or because whatever. it did kind of make me think to go back and rewatch some. Like I went and rewatched the original Dumbo. And then I went back and, like, just watched some of the other ones from the early ages, like Bambi or Pinocchio, like the really, really early ones. Mm-hmm. And those really stand out to me as experiments of creativity. Yeah. Like, these movies were so different. They were essentially the Pixar films of their day. And yet, the remakes, they're not experiments of creativity at all. They're just, they almost do feel like cynical money grabs of just, let's do the same thing shot for shot. And just see how much money it makes. And it's it like Disney has such a chance to be bold. Mm-hmm. And these, like, you know, they're, they're the biggest company in the world right now. Their movies are on top. They, they obviously know how to make movies. And yet to just stick with remakes that are shot for shot, it's like the most uncreative thing you could possibly do. Yeah, I mean, I think this one is the one where I noticed it most, where it was like shot for shot, lack of creativity. Dumbo did a good job expanding the story. A lot of people didn't like that they did that. I actually did. Hmm. You know, uh, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, we have some creativity with the musical numbers. There's a couple added scenes, some new characters. So I, I think those ones, they did a little better job of having some nuance and creativity. But this is the first one where I just felt like it was almost just pointless. And it was kind of annoying. Um, another thing, uh, there's they're going for this realistic feel in The Lion yeah. King. Um, so it's, it's almost awkward. Because the, the animals don't have very much emotion. They don't have very much facial emotion. When Simba and Nala meet up and they're adults and they're like falling in love and they're just kind of like frolicking with each other. It's just kind of awkward because they're talking, but they look like real lions. So it's like, I mean, they couldn't have made it too much like the original because that would have just made it even more pointless if they made their faces look like cartoons. Yeah. You know, I'm glad they went for this realistic feel, but it's almost weird to watch. It's like you're watching a documentary <clears throat> On, on Discovery Channel, and but they're talking. <laughs> you know what my first clue was that this movie's going to have be trouble? Was when every single trailer, like may, maybe there's one I missed, but almost every single trailer I saw for The Lion King, they have almost no shots of the, of the characters talking mm-hmm. in the clips. Like the, the trailer, you go back and rewatch the trailer. Like there's maybe one clip where you see a, a, a lion talking quickly. But other than that, None of the clips have the characters talking in them. Right, and um, that's probably because they're trying to focus on the things that this movie does well. Yeah. Which, of course, it is incredible animation. John Favreau directed yeah. the Jungle Book yeah. uh, adaptation, which is one that I really love. Yeah, he's so, a great director. So yeah. the animation is fantastic. I mean, you you, you did, the story criticisms that I have have nothing to do with how the animation, the, the Savannah, sure. the Pride Lands, it's brought to life beautifully. Um, I thought Timon and Pumbaa, um, played by Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen, stole the show. Mm-hmm. Their comedy is hilarious. They use they reuse some of the jokes um, that they that they did for the original, but there's some also some new funny ones. So I thought they were handled really well. And of course, they come in right after the uh, you know uh, Mufasa is killed, and they bring some levity to the story. How I thought, was that the Mufasa death scene? Uh, you've seen it already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it looks exactly like it doesn't in the movie. feel. It doesn't feel any different. Uh, no, it's the same thing. It, it's, it's almost shot by shot. Yes, they even do the zoom in on Simba with his face. Like it's it's pretty much shot for shot, and wow. it's it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, you could say this time and time again with this movie. You know, I think Scar, um, who is, who is voiced by Chiwetel Ejiofor, is pretty imposing and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do a good, he's a good villain. One of my biggest problems with the live-action Aladdin was that I felt like Jafar was lacking in sort of villainy. So I'm glad that they at least gave Scar. He's very menacing and terrifying. The music, the original songs are incorporated well in a sort of realistic way. Because obviously, you know, in, a, in this type of animation, you can't just bust out into song, kind yeah. of not like the cartoon, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So they have to, they're going for this realistic tone. So they, they do it a little bit, you know, it's incorporated well. So there were there were certain things that I liked about the movie. 
Um, I just wanted more creativity. I thought they, it was a missed opportunity to expand on this world that they've already created. And instead, they're basically just regurgitating what they already did, which is disappointing to me. So um, my power rankings for the, the live-action Disney remakes, we have three of them come out this year. And this is starting with uh, the Maleficent uh, remake. I'm not counting like the old 101 Dalmatians and stuff like yeah. that. So The uh, other live-action Jungle Book they did. Yeah, like, right, like, way back yeah. when, way back when. So, I mean, the Jungle Book is my favorite. I'd put Beauty and the Beast second, then Aladdin, then Dumbo, then Cinderella, then Christopher Robin. I'd put The Lion King seventh, and Maleficent is the only one I'd put behind it. And of course, the Maleficent Oof. sequel is coming out this year. So, um, really disappointing for me because um, I, I really love The Lion King. Like I said, it's probably my favorite, um, you know, animated <clears throat> film of all time. It's a, it's a nearly perfect story. Yeah. So maybe that's why they didn't want to <clears throat> risk messing with it um but i give it a 6.5 out of 10 which is a pretty disappointing grade i may have missed it but where'd you rank pete's dragon or are you not counting that as an anime uh you know what i just forgot i haven't seen pete's dragon yeah so that i would count that but yeah that is one i haven't seen it i haven't the, seen it the original the only thing animated in it is the dragon though right so like i guess it's not an animated movie no because yeah. now he's just computer animated yeah. instead of a cartoon but it is one of their remakes like, right so, yeah. yeah so i haven't seen pete's dragon so uh, that's that's a you know check on the side for now, but anyways, um, you know this movie's making a ton of money. Of course, everyone wants to see the Lion King. The kids will probably like it because they're not going to look at it from this cynical of a point of view. But yeah, the Lion King uh, live action remake is a disappointment for me. All right, so moving along to the uh, television review portion of today's show here on August fifth. Um, Mike has a show he's been watching, and I have a few I've been watching on HBO. Um, so, Mike, tell me tell me what you've been watching in the world of TV lately. Alrighty, so I just finished Amazon's Jack Ryan, and I have to say I enjoyed it very, very much. Um, this show uh, brings back the Tom Clancy character Jack Ryan, who is just an analyst for the CIA, but ends up uh, getting in all the action and uh, just having great stories around him. Um, yeah, uh, there's been a couple different Jack Ryans. I mean, first we ever had was Hunt for October with Alec Baldwin. And then they moved on to Patriot Games and Clear Present Danger with Harrison Ford. Uh, and then The Sum of All Fears with Ben Affleck. And finally, Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit with uh, Chris Pine. Um, so we've already had, like, you know, a bunch of Jack Ryans. And this is the first real TV show iteration. And um, I gotta say, John Krasinski knocks it out of the park. Everything that I liked about all the other Jack Ryans. He had it. Um, he nailed it for, like, a, a foundational, like, origin story for the character. Um, you know, he's definitely still got, like, you can still tell this guy was Jim Halpert. Like, there's still just, like, very good average guy things about him. But say, I'm trying to figure out how Jim Halpert turns into Jack Ryan here. This Jim is... Halpert's cool. I like <laughs> Halpert. Halpert's a, a crafty guy. I think he could do it. But, uh, yeah, uh, he does a very good um, job portraying, like, I think what's best about the character of Jack Ryan. That's like, he's got integrity, he's got compassion and he's got brains. And those three things like together are kind of what fuel him to be brave because even though Jack Ryan isn't maybe as well-trained or isn't as like badass as some of these other guys, he's got all the nobilities in him worth fighting for. And so that is, uh, uh, that, that's really fun to watch. Uh, John Krasinski just knocked that role out of the park. Um, it's a good story. Um, it, I won't give away the details, but it really does a great job, this show, focusing on, um, at least for this first season, uh, focused on characters in the Middle East and, you know, why people would turn to terrorism and stuff. What what are their lives like? You know, wh what approach do they come from when looking at the world? Um, there's some great, there was one line in the show I really liked, and it was, geography is destiny. And the line really makes you realize, like, where you're born does determine, like, so much of what your life's going to be and how you're going to view the world and, you know, what sides you'll pick in conflicts just because, well, this is this is where you're from. This is home. This is what you've known your whole life. So it does a good job uh, empathizing with the plight of the Middle East and the people there without, uh, you know, um, sanctioning terrorism or saying, well, it's okay that they're, you know, people are trying to murder others. Uh, so it was very good, um, very good uh, portrayal of um, the fight against terror and, and also, like, maybe what could win which is maybe maybe compassion and maybe like trying to understand and build diplomatic relationships. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a good show. So the show, you're saying it does a good job sort of showing both sides. And so <clears> I feel like often in film or television, 
uh, particularly when we're dealing with the Middle East or maybe like the war on drugs at the border. Yeah. We pretty much only get like the, the side of the DEA agents. We don't really get the side of, you know, the people who are actually, you know, the mules carrying it across the border or the drug dealers themselves. Or So, so you're saying we kind of get a glimpse into the psyche of the so-called bad guys? Yeah. Um, and it does a great job too, like walking through like some of their, their, their life stories. Like, um, like you see some of these characters when they're young as boys and like what happens and a bomb hits their house and stuff. And then, then you see them kind of like in their early twenties struggling in college and like, you know, like, you know, receiving, you know, racist treatment cause they're Arabic and stuff. And like, how does that affect them? And how does that like make them feel they're welcome in the world? And then, you know, it does show you that. Um, people's lives are a lot more complicated than just like a, you know, a poster board for they're wanted and they're, they're the enemy. Um, it, it shows you where people come from. And, um, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Cause we don't see stuff like that in TV. Like there's no real stories that follow a ton of middle Eastern characters through their, their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's just nice to see, uh, just something that's so different and unique and, and necessary storytelling. We need to know the stories. One thing I always wonder about, um, you know, TV shows that deal with this sort of subject matter or are set in sort of the action political <clears throat> thriller arena is how well the action sequences or the, um, you know, the the pinnacle sequences that, yeah. you know, action costs money. We know with this with Game of Thrones, we know this with, you know, these, these super expensive TV shows that are showing these epic battles or whatever. Um, I mean, so I'm always curious as how as to how they hold up on TV. I mean, how would you say these are pretty well done? Are they, you um, know, is the show about action or is it more about character development? Would you say the show's a lot more about uh, the tensions of kind of the, the tensions of intrigue, like the you don't want this person to get hurt, but you know this person needs to be stopped, and yet you know stopping them will make this person want to do this. And it, like, it's more, I would say, like something like Game of Thrones, the action is intense. Mm-hmm. I would say the action in Jack Ryan is tense. Like you don't know if someone's going to maybe have a, a bomb vest or something. Right. Or you don't know, oh, it's okay, we'll help this person. And then tarantino S. that kid has a grenade Possibly. or something, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Building the tension. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to give anything away, but it's like in some ways anyone could be the enemy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so it makes it tense. But it's not like you're not watching Jack Ryan like in a minefield being bull- like it's not it's not something like Game. Say of like Thrones. with some like if someone likes Mission Impossible like obviously Christopher McQuarrie he's directed the latest Mission Impossible <clears throat> so he directed the uh, the Jack Ryan with Chris Pine. Um, I mean, if someone likes that, would they be interested in this show? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Jack Ryan's not hanging on to any planes or <laughs> you know. Krasinski's not yeah. jumping out of buildings and stuff. <laughs> Come on, step up no, your game, Jim. He's just an analyst, man. Uh, he doesn't do that. Uh, yeah, paper pusher. It was good though. It okay, was good. cool. So you re- would recommend? I would recommend. I'd give that show uh, a good, a good B plus, A minus, ah, A minus, okay. A minus. So that they, they just had the first season so far, right? Yep. Uh, second season just had the trailer uh, come out for that. I think a couple weeks ago. Okay. Maybe last week. I don't remember. So that's Jack Ryan. That's something I have not checked out yet. That's on Amazon Prime. I, I actually so. think you would like it, Chandler. Well, I, I, think it, I think it's something that you would personally get into. I'll put it on the list. It's an ever-growing, endless list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyways, that's on Amazon Prime. You can check it out there. All right, moving on to uh, a few other television shows. Um, I've been watching a lot of HBO lately. Yes. I recently got my paws, my grubby, my grubby cheap paws on someone else's uh hbo go password so i've been sort of delving into their long uh delicious catalog of tv shows i've actually been uh, watching the sopranos for the first time and i'm into season three now nearing the end i'm not going to talk about that today because i haven't seen the end of it and it's like 20 years old i I did the same by the way i went back and like started watching the sopranos i I finished season one and now i'm starting season two and it's uh Uh, it's fantastic yeah doesn't take long to see why it's considered one of the greatest shows of all time yeah Anyways, that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about a little more uh, current. Uh, three of them, actually. I'm just going to touch on them uh, briefly. I'm calling this little segment is uh, the Power Rankings. Power Rankings is a segment we've done on the show before. Long-time listeners will know it. Uh, before we pick a genre and then rank our top three in that specific genre. So this isn't an official Power Rankings segment, but um, I'm just going to run down the three current HBO shows I've been watching lately and rank them three to one. So number three um, is Big Little Lies. Uh, season two. Season one was obviously met with critical acclaim. 
uh, won tons of awards. I think he might have even won Best Miniseries. Um, this story follows uh, the apparently perfect lives of upper-class mothers at a prestigious elementary school, which unraveled to the point of murder when a single mother moves to their quaint California beach town. This show stars a ridiculously talented cast led by Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Zoe Kravitz, Adam Scott, Laura Dern, James Tupper, Alexander Skarsgård, and Jeffrey Nordling. And then this year joining the cast is the legendary Meryl Streep here for season two. So yeah. a lot of star power that, for a, a stacked te- television show there. <laughs> um, Academy Awards uh, upon Academy Awards. Season two picks up right where the story left off in season one, and as I said, adds Meryl Streep to the cast. This is, show is brilliantly acted, which is not surprisingly. Unfortunately, I think this should have been left as a miniseries, which is what it was originally supposed to be, um, just the one season miniseries before it became a mega hit. And of course, it seems to be a theme of today's show, where there's more money to be made, they're going to do it, so they, they came back for a season two. Um, and, and I have to say, the season two, while entertaining and wonderfully acted and well-written and well-shot, it's kind of pointless. Um, I don't think there's enough story here to sustain a season two. Um, you know, throughout this season, they're still dealing with the same thread of stuff that carried season one. You know, we go through this seven-episode season two, and by the end of it, you're like, okay, that was fantastic and enjoyable to watch. But what really happened? And when you think about it, the answer is nothing. The plot hasn't been moved forward at all. Hmm. There's just been a bunch of side stories that have played out, and nothing's really happened. It's entertaining. It's a masterclass on acting. It's fun to watch these actresses work, especially Meryl Streep, who is terrifying as this sort of outwardly pleasant old lady. But she's actually cutthroat and terrifying and backstabbing and makes like, these <laughs> backhanded comments to these beautiful rich women and it's just fantastic and laura dern who basically spends the whole season offering hilarious one-liners yelling and giving us uh you know material for internet gifts basically every (laughs) week um so some are clamoring for a season three i'd rather just leave it how it is because they kind of wrapped it up but again not a lot happened so it was a little bit of a letdown to me what do you know about big little lies um, I just Wikipedia'd it, and I'm looking at how many awards it a lot. has. Yeah, the accolades page. And those for are this worthy. Show it's is worthy. unbelievable. Yeah, it's yeah. worthy, and it, it, it's definitely worthy. But um, like I said, the story stretched too thin because it's supposed to be a miniseries. You can't just craft a season two out of nowhere, yeah. uh, despite great talent and great filmmaking. So season two, um, you know, it's not bad, but it's probably pointless. Um, the producers have come out and said that a season three is virtually impossible because of the schedules of its yeah. cast. How are you going to fit all those people? Like, those are some of the best actors in the world. Right. Like, Who are working. It's yeah. not like they're retired. They're all <laughs> working. All the, Nicole Kidman is in, like, yeah. five movies a year, I swear. So, um, you know, you know, Shailene Woodley is one of the, the up-and-coming stars in the world of film, if she's not already there. You know, Reese Witherspoon, I wouldn't say she works quite as much, but she's obviously very famous. Um, you know, and Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep, so, um, it's worth watching if you're into that sort of, if you're into, like, Desperate Housewives, or if you liked sort of shows like that, I would say this one takes a little bit more serious tone, they're dealing with very serious issues in this show, um, and it's very well done, but, you know, a little bit, uh, unneeded for the second season. Another show I've been watching on HBO, it just wrapped up last night, it's called Euphoria. Mm. Um, this I, I had a friend who literally just said, like, he just finished it, and he said it's his favorite TV show ever. It's ever. Like, he's so obsessed with the show. It's gotten mixed reviews <clears throat> and mixed reception for a lot of reasons. <clears throat> the plot's over on IMDb. A look, at the li- uh, look at life for a group of high school students as they grapple with the issues of drugs, sex, and violence. This is created by Sam Levinson and stars uh, Zendaya in the, uh, t- in the main character, um, it also has an ensemble cast of uh, Maude Apatow, Angus Cloud, Eric Dane, Alexa Durney, Jacob Elordi, Barbie, Barbie Ferreira, Nikki King, Storm Reed, Hunter Schaefer, Elja Smith, and Sydney Sweeney. So not, not a lot of huge names, although I think they probably will be after this show. I read that plot summary. What does that sound like to you? every other show about teens ever. Kind of, yeah. So it's kind of like, well, what's so great about this show? You just said your friend loves it. 
it's ridiculously stylish. It's it's super intentional in the way that it makes this high school world look. Um, you know, it's 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 really going for 2019. This is a contemporary drama. It's supposed to be very much in our time. Um, you know, at least in terms of the way the kids are acting and how they're dealing with issues of today. This isn't like you know 2000s 90s. It's now. And what I mean by stylish is. There's constant neon lighting. Lighting is so crazy. There's these shots from unique angles. There's unrealistic shots that take place within the story. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but the cast is incredible. Largely, largely unknown actors outside of Zendaya. Um, Hunter Schaefer plays this transgender character that isn't outwardly introduced as trans. In other words, they, they don't make a big deal out of it, mm -hmm. but they just kind of let you figure that out for yourself. And I think that's kind of a cool approach to not make a big deal um, out of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and for a show that takes a realistic and sort of raw, unglamorized look at teenage issues, it almost behaves like it's taking place in this teenage dream world. The whole show almost feels like it's a dream. Um, you know, there's there's uh, this there's cool contemporary music mixed in. Um, and when I say this dream, like the, the, the last scene, uh, one of the episodes has a high school dance where everyone's drinking and smoking and hooking up in the bathroom and there's raunchy music and they're dancing like they're at the wayside at 1.30 a.m. on pint night. Like it's, it's unrealistic. No self-respecting school would ever allow it, which makes it almost feel like it's like this unrealistic teenage world that these kids are living in. Um, and that quality, along with the structure of the show, where, where each episode starts with Zendaya's character, Rue, um, sort of narrating the early life of a major character, um, <clears throat> that's led to this fan theory that people think she's actually dead, um, which would make sense since she's like this all-knowing voice. She knows things about lives that a normal person wouldn't. Um, mm. That's not directly addressed yet. Um, but So the finale, finale just aired last night. I didn't love the finale. It was very sloppy. It was jumping all over the place from past to future to present to back to the past. Really hard to track, and the ending was left ambiguous. Um, so that fan theory hasn't quite been put to bed or answered either way. Um, one of the main criticisms of the show is that it's been more style than substance. I haven't really agreed with that all along until this finale. Um, but overall, I've enjoyed it in a sort of guilty pleasure sort of way. Um, I like that it's pushing the limits and dealing with very new current issues in a stylistic way. Um, so I would recommend it to people, although it's not going to be for everyone. I mean, there's some pretty, um, you know, intense stuff depicted on screen. Lots of nudity, sex, swearing, violence. Um, it's HBO. They're really pushing the limits and earning that HBO tag with this show. So that's euphoria. Uh, any interest in watching this show? Uh, I mean, yeah, I... I Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think anything that's gotten such a reaction from my friends, I'm like, yeah, I'd be interested to see how they do it. Um, did you feel like with the stuff that like, was very graphic, like, did you feel like it was kind of creepy watching teens perform uh, such it, illicit behavior? Like, did you have a problem with that at all? Or? Well, of course, like every show along these natures, the teens mm -hmm. don't actually look like teens. They look like they're yeah. young adults, you know, like they always do. So it's not like uncomfortable. I wouldn't okay. say. I mean, it, I'm very, you know, desensitized to this kind of stuff. I've seen a lot of movies. I've taken a censorship in the cinema class. Mm -hmm. I've seen some fucked up shit on screen. <laughs> so, like, this this cool. doesn't really <laughs> mess with me as okay. much as it might yeah. mess with the, the normal person. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, it's even though it's taking place, it has this dreamlike quality to it, the show. Um, it's, it, it, it's very raw. You know, mm. it's very realistic and matter of fact and in the way that they approach it and these are real issues that teens deal with today so um you know i think that you can get something out of it um you know i'm, I'm not recommending you let your 13 year old watch this but you know if you're in college or you're uh, just getting out of high school i mean i think you'll, yeah. you will relate to this would you recommend a high schooler watch it um no <laughs> probably not probably not you're probably gonna want to at least be 18 Okay. Uh, you know, cause it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty graphic. It is. Yeah. And there's some pretty disturbing stuff that's shown on screen. Um, but it's, it's artfully done. You know, that's been one of the main criticisms that people say. They're like, well, what's the point of this show? It's, it's so stylish yeah. that I feel like it's losing track of what it's actually trying to say. And I could see that. Um, but 
but it's so fun to me to watch. People are gonna be like, "Wow, champ, he's a weirdo." You like <laughs> seeing like dicks on screen, yay! Like you know, like I don't know. It was just like. <laughs> you know, it's it's stylish. There's nothing like it that I've seen. And that's saying something yeah. when you're talking about a teeny bopper drama. So yeah. which is a genre that's been beaten to death. So that's Euphoria. And the best show I've seen on HBO lately, I've been watching a lot on HBO, is Chernobyl. Um this show premiered shortly after Game of Thrones ended, so I really appreciated that to sort of fill the void. The plot summary in IMDb. In April 1986, an explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics becomes one of the world's worst man-made catastrophes. This show was created by Craig Mazin and stars an ensemble cast, but led by Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, and Emily Watson. Um, as I said on HBO, it was a miniseries. This show is bloody fantastic. It's one of my favorite things that's ever been made in my, that I've ever seen. Wow. You know, everyone knows about Chernobyl, but hardly anyone knows about Chernobyl. Right. Uh, you know, as in what actually happened. You know, there's there's these horror films out there where there's zombies at Chernobyl. You know, we get Chernobyl Diaries. I remember playing the original Call of Duty. There's a level that takes place in Pripyat, mm-hmm. and Chernobyl's there, and the radiation's getting after the main character. Um, so, so people are exposed to Chernobyl, but they don't, but those things did very little to actually explain what happened without exploiting it. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, this show is incredibly educational and enlightening as to what actually happened. And it puts the spotlight on a lot of normal people who actually saved a lot of lives and contained the problem. Um, Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård, Emily Watson are fantastic in their roles. Um, it's a haunting show. There's dark and terrifying imagery throughout it. There's a sense of dread throughout it. And the show is bookended by its two best episodes, in my opinion. Um, the first one, the premiere, um, we're watching the disaster happen in real time. So we're experiencing it along with those affected in Pripyat. And we're following the people in the control room who know something isn't quite right, but they're being ordered to do it anyway. We're following the firefighters who are outside being exposed to this unknown danger. You know, at one point you hear one of them look at each other and they go, do you taste metal? Mm. And just that line, when we know what's happening to them, but they have no idea, it's, it's their ignorance is what sticks with me to, mm. in this show. Just watching that opening scene, um, it's it's it's. It's truly terrifying. The finale is one of the best I've seen where Jared Harris's character is in a courtroom and he's sort of recounting the day's events. So even though we saw it happen four episodes before, um, we have so much more context as to what's going on. So reliving it is like this whole new experience. Um, and, and it really puts the show together with a nice bow. It's just an incredibly well-done miniseries that will stick with you and make you want to learn more. Um, about your novel so um i know you have interest in seeing this i know you're a big history yeah. guy so um, well, what are you waiting for here well yeah <laughs> um, HBO, I, I, after game of thrones I, I got rid of hbo and now i want it back but yeah hbo is just the master of miniseries like i mean they've got band of brothers the pacific J- john adams uh and now this big little lies was supposed to be a miniseries. yeah like no one does miniseries the way they do i'm just i'm so excited to see this and it's also exciting to see stuff where it's like Kind of like what you said, like everyone know. oh yeah, Chernobyl, right? Big nuclear disaster, terrible. Well, go through the details. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like I love that, like I love when we finally have stuff that educates us on this. Like, you know, um, then that's what we were saying earlier about like Jack Ryan where it's like, oh, like finally stories where you're starting to learn about, like no one's doing a story about like Middle Eastern people. Like that's fascinating. No, one, no one's doing a story about like, so much stuff that happened in the Soviet Union. Like, we, we, we really love um, uh, Death of Stalin. We've talked about that movie before. Yeah. And it's just, like, part of what was so great about this stuff is, like, no one's ever done anything like this before. Chernobyl is such an original idea for a miniseries. Mm-hmm. So, Right, um, yeah. Like I said yeah. before, it's just been sort of, like, fluff and almost, yeah. like, ex- exploitation yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Rather than actually signing a spotlight. And, of course, you know, in America, we have a very tense relationship with Russia. Sure. And, um, you know... I think a lot of Americans in the world is like, well, fuck you, Russia. Like, way to go. Way to screw this up. You know, you you ruined everything. And what we find out in this 
is there was a lot of, yeah, the government, of course, they tried to cover it up. Yeah. Uh, but there's people on the ground, and we find out in this show that there was hundreds and thousands of quite literally heroes that kept this disaster from being worse. Mm. And I think that's probably what it's truly going to be, why it's an important miniseries, is because it's going to shine a light on all these random people, these nameless heroes yeah. that kept this from being the biggest disaster, even more the biggest disaster oh, than the yeah. world has ever seen. Yeah. It, this could have quite literally changed the world, at Europe as we know it, if yeah. not for these people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's terrifying to think about what the consequences of it could have been. Um, is it true that they're actually doing a Russian version of this now? Like, Russia wants to make their own miniseries? Uh, I haven't something? heard that, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me, because yeah. I'm sure the Russian reception to this wasn't uh, great, even though we are, you know, it does make the, the people of Russia look quite well. They're portrayed in a pretty positive light. And so. it's a pretty accurate miniseries this year? Yeah, I've heard it, yeah. Um, I've heard that the historians agree that it was pretty well done, pretty historically accurate, so. You gave this high praise where you said this may be your favorite thing ever. One of them. What what where does that come from for you? Like what, I just that's think, a very personal thing to say about any kind of piece of art. What is it? What does uh, that really stand well, that one to I you? Lo- one I love history, so yeah. it's gonna. I love this kind of subject matter. I love you know when when I get to learn about things, but I just think this is it's really impactful. It's it's a it's this huge, um, you know, global altering event. But this is a very personal story about the individual people that were involved and the individual people who fought to expose the truth Mm. um, and the individual people who actually saved lives by doing this and also the people that were affected and died. This movie doesn't hold, or this miniseries doesn't hold anything back. There are some gruesome hospital shots of people losing their hair and dealing with radiation and uh, it doesn't hold anything back. It's not a happy series. It's not going to make you feel good and that's purposeful. Because it's not a happy event. Yeah. I just felt like it was so um, intently and done and so, you know, just um, attention to detail. It's done for the right reasons, unlike a lot of the other stuff we see around Chernobyl. And I think for that reason, it just, you know, really impacted me. Um, I would I would recommend not binging this. <laughs> Watch oh, it in oh chunks because no. you're probably going to be sad, really sad. Oh, if, you, if you sit down and try and watch this for five hours... You're not going to want to do anything, so I, I wouldn't do that. I would take breaks between the episodes and kind of try and digest what you're seeing. Um, but yeah, it's one of my the favorite things I've ever seen. So um, one other note, we, we end with sort of postscripts about what actually happened with it and at the end of it. And um, we'll never know the true cost of Chernobyl. Some estimated it caused you know 4,000 to 90,000 deaths. We don't really know. Guess how much the actual Soviet Union takes credit for. What do you mean takes credit for? Their official death count for for the Chernobyl disaster in the Soviet Union. Uh, 12? 31. So, that tells you everything you need to know about the USSR. Anyways. Yeah. We're going to move on to something a little more happy. <laughs> yeah. I think you could call it our... The Mansons and Sharon Tate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Manson murder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, our featured review today, it's Quentin Tarantino's newest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the plot summary on IMDb, a faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. This film was directed and written by the great Quentin Tarantino and stars a fantastic cast led by Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Um, but also Emile Hirsch, Margaret Qualey, Timothy Oliphant is in this, Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino, Damian Lewis, Luke Perry, <laughs> Mike Moe. Uh, it, so it's, great. It's a really good cast, uh, at, per usual, with Tarantino's films. Um, so uh, the Tarantino's paws are all over this thing. Um, of course, when he <laughs> makes a movie, he makes a movie. Yeah. Uh, comes out of them one, you know, it's an event when Tarantino releases a film. So where do you want to start with this thing? Um, yeah, I think you have to kind of start with Tarantino. Like, this is his, uh, what was this, his ninth film? Ninth, yeah. Yeah, it's ninth film. I always remember that because Hateful Eight was his eighth. Right, oh, that's a nice way to remember it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like you said, like, his, his paws um, are over it. Well, his his personality with everything he does, it it comes through shining, sometimes overwhelming a little bit, uh, the story, but it's, it's there, and, uh, 
this is definitely I think it's been called like his love letter to Hollywood or his love letter to like the old Hollywood mm-hmm. um, and it certainly is like he definitely um, shows how how like fascinated and how much he imitates it although he definitely has a lot of critique of it in this like he shows a lot of the the na- naivety the of it yeah the warts <laughs> um, the corruption of that system um, but yeah I I would uh, I would say this movie definitely showcased the skills of the cast. Like DiCaprio's acting is just incredible in this, and the way he takes this character, who is uh, like a kind of an aging Western TV star, and trying to get into, midlife crisis. Oh yeah, and then he's got these this movie he's making, and it cuts back and forth between DiCaprio trying to play the character, messing it up like giving himself this, this pep talk, this hate talk, and then he goes back and just uh, does the scene again. And I thought I thought that part of the movie, to be honest, dragged a little bit, where we just suddenly get lost in the cowboy movie within the movie. Right. Like, it's uh, like, where is this going? Yeah, it's like, this is this is no ad, this is not addition to the plot. This isn't really, like, it's just kind of Tarantino being in love with getting to do this, and that's where his personality sometimes overwhelms the plot a little bit. But, like, with, with the exception of that kind of slow part in the middle... Um, this was a really fun, like, this was a fun film. Yeah, he's great at getting the most out of his actors. Obviously, it helps when you oh, have, yeah. you know, two of the best actors of their generation in Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, you mentioned the love letter to Hollywood. It definitely is that. It's a, I think this movie is a movie for movie lovers, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, I would say it's, that. it's a tribute to the golden age. We see the old TV shows. We see the old movies. We see how things were done back then. You know, um, it's, it's, um, and when he says it's a love letter to Hollywood, I think it's almost like if you, if we look how the plot plays out, right? Like it really is a fairy tale. Of mm. Hollywood, it's like a Quentin Tarantino yeah. fairy tale of Hollywood. Well, the because, title is Once Upon a Time, right? Like, right. Yeah. So, like Leonardo DiCaprio's character, right? He's playing the you said he's the aging, washed up action star who's now the villain. He's always getting his ass kicked by the heroes, as Al Pacino's character wonderfully puts it in the very yeah. beginning of the film. You're yeah. getting your ass kicked. What do you get? Who's kicking your ass <laughs> next week? You know, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and his character spiraling out of control. He's losing it. What we've seen this character before, and what happens in every other film? He burns out. He turns to drugs and alcohol. His life goes down the tubes. In this movie, he actually regains his form and does really well. You know, mm-hmm. it's not your typical story of an over-the-hill actor. And then, you know, of course, what we get to the main reason why you could say that this is a fairy tale is because <laughs> how, we, how we find out yeah. is that somehow this story about a stuntman and an actor is going, they're going to cross paths with Sharon Tate and the Manson family, mm-hmm. which is just a ridiculous idea. Like that, that this fictional story taking place on the fringes of real life's events is going to start to crisscross with this real event. And at the end, we find out that. Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters are going to thwart the Manson family <laughs> from killing Sharon Tate and all yeah. the people in their mansion because he's their next door neighbor. Yeah. So that's the real fairy tale. It's here. when the love letter turns into a revenge fantasy. Of, <laughs> right. Like, wouldn't it be great if like someone just beat up those guys who did this? Lights and... them with a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> like... Oh my god. <laughs> that's it. People in the theater cheered like when he walked out. So yeah, uh, basically there's a setup with a flamethrower and it comes back in a very very satisfying way. And when he walks out in the end with the flamethrower, our whole audience like started cheering because they mm-hmm. knew it was coming. Right. And, uh, so he's quite literally rewriting history here. Yeah. Of course, this is one of Hollywood's most infamous tragedies. Yeah. And it's being thwarted here by a stuntman and a fading actor. Um, which, which is which Tarantino has done many times. Like, Inglorious Bastards, like, mm-hmm. Hitler doesn't die in a suicidally in a bunker. No. We, the Inglorious Bastards, kill him and they blow up everyone. And, yeah. like... You That's know, true. I Django, never thought about Django that. Unchained is like what? No, slave a, this awesome gets... slave cowboy comes back and blows them all up, and they. Which I mean, yeah, there were slave rebellions, but like both of those movies are kind of revisionist fantasies of like, wouldn't it be fun if this had happened though? Yeah, and this I, is another one. This is another one of those from him. I hadn't really thought about that. It is sort of like I guess this is kind of like a Tarantino staple, you could say, yeah. of him just being. What can I do to make this fun? Like it's yeah. obviously tragedy. It's a tragic event. Um, but what can I do to make this fun? And, you know, this movie, <clears throat> Tarantino, obviously, you know, uh, he's not the master of su- suspense like Hitchcock, 
but he is a master of suspense in his own unique way at sort of building up dread and drama. And I think throughout this movie, um, you know, we get that sort of Tarantino, at least in the second half, after we get past all the random yeah. cowboy stuff, when Cliff first goes to Spawn Ranch and he's checking on Bruce Dern, did you not think that the Manson family was just going to, like, gang knife him to death? Yeah, like, throughout yeah. that entire scene, it's yeah. so suspense-driven. Mm-hmm. And actually, what's happening on screen is nothing that scary. <laughs> but you're just scared for Brad Pitt in that moment. Especially because he's on acid. <laughs> right. So, right. like, that that was very funny where it's like, oh, like, one of the most notorious murders, like, in that moment has come to this man and he's he's high on acid. And so his interpret like this guy just comes in pointing a gun at him and he's just like, "Are you real?" Like right. just a while, like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, or even back when so... he first goes to Spawn Ranch is what yeah. I'm referencing when he drops the girl off and oh yeah, like yeah, you yeah. almost feel like something bad's gonna happen to him there as right, well. Yeah. Um, Sh- Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie, who I if I do have one main criticism of this film, it's that I think she's a little underutilized. I, I would say the same thing. Uh, Margot Robbie, like, what does she have? Like maybe 50 lines in this entire movie. I mean, it's mostly, she's just there and maybe yeah. that's purposeful. You know, whenever we see the shots of, of, of Sharon Tate, it's sort of like her walking around Hollywood and the camera's sort of placed like it's someone's watching her mm-hmm. or following her around. It's almost kind of voyeuristic. Yeah. Like we're waiting for something bad to happen to her. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's purposeful. Maybe she's, we saying she's underutilized because she's supposed to be on the fringes of this story. She's suppo- We're supposed to think that something bad is going to happen to her, which ultimately it never does. But I did notice that whenever, you know, when she goes to see her own movie, she, she they're just kind of following her around. And she never yeah. has interaction with the characters until the end, where after... And it's just after on this, speaker. Yeah. <laughs> and then, or then he walks up and gives her a hug, which is like, aw, it's nice to see Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie hug again after Wolf of Wall Street. Right. But it's like, her character was just kind of this object of a plot line in the story. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely an under underutilization of her. She's a very talented actress. And... Um, yeah, you brought up Hitchcock earlier. A friend I saw it with made this comment that it kind of felt like she was almost one of the someone. Some people have said that like in all of his movies, like Hitchcock, kind of has this beautiful blonde who needs to be saved, or is at the core point of the plot, or something like that. And in some ways, she kind of felt like that. Mm-hmm. This beautiful blonde who was at the core plot, and the whole thing was leading up to this horrible thing that was going to happen to her, and she needed to be saved from it. Um, and I, I wondered if he was trying to do that. It's hard to know what he was always trying to do with everything. Cause there's so many components that you sometimes feel like you're watching a TV show as a movie. Cause there's definitely like, okay, that feels like it was just an episode and that feels like it was a blocked off episode. And, right. there's, and it's, it's such a long movie yeah, too. Two hours and 47 minutes. Yeah. And it so. like, I love Quentin Tarantino, but that movie did not need to be that long. You could say that about every Quentin Tarantino uh, movie. Yeah, and it was just like I—I I think it. I needed a rewatch. I, I've seen it once, and I—I—I I, I just kind of want to watch it again and see what I pick up the second time. Of like, what is like, what is this about? Like, why does why is he putting this in here? Like, how does this relate to this? Some of it felt very disconnected. Mm-hmm. As enjoyable as every disconnected piece was, it did kind of sometimes feel disjointed to me. Well, yeah. I mean, you do wonder, like, why some of the stuff, like, why did they spend so much time on Leonardo DiCaprio being on the set and in this show? I mean, I, I guess it's all character development, you know? The the, the scene when uh, Brad Pitt is on the roof fixing the antenna and we flash yeah. back to when he kicked Bruce Lee's ass. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> yeah. a fantastic scene. Super funny. But, yeah. like... Do we really need it? I don't know. And I know Quentin Tarantino's a fan of Bruce Lee, but I was kind of like, why is he going to do Bruce Lee like this? Like, Bruce Lee wasn't a cocky, fight-starting <laughs> jerk, you know? Like, and it almost sounds like one of those stories like, oh, yeah, I knew this guy. He was so great, man. He could have kicked Bruce Lee's ass. And it's like, <laughs> no, he couldn't have. No, no, he couldn't have. And then you watch it, and you're like, come on. Yeah. And Brad Bruce Pitt's Lee, going Lee. to kick Bruce Lee's ass. Give me a break. Like, Bruce Lee's played by Mike Moe, and he's one of the many side characters great. that come in and out in this oh, movie. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. You know, Bruce Dern plays the Spawn guy who's blind, and he's just like, what the hell are you oh, doing yeah. here? And Which is kind of great, because Leonardo DiCaprio's, like, evil cowboy character that he creates is almost like an image of Bruce Dern. Like, right. I love Bruce Dern from those old movies and it's like, oh, like even before I knew Bruce Dern was in the movie, I was like, oh, he's doing Bruce Dern here. Right. We get, and then Bruce Dern shows up and I was like, Bruce Dern! There he is! <laughs> we get Kurt Russell who pops in uncredited. <laughs> so he just great. shows in as, as the guy who gives uh, Cliff a chance and he oh, screws man. it up. You know, the little girl 
Um, who, that kid was amazing. Yeah, she was so funny. She was so great. I wish I could find her, her name. She was one of the, if you're listening uh, to Julia this. Julia Butters is her name. Julia, what if, a you're cute name. if you're listening to this, you were one of the highlights of that movie. Yeah, you she, were so great. Just explaining to Leonardo DiCaprio about yeah. how terrible of an actor he actually is. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? She's oh, like this man. professional little prodigy. You know, we got Al Pacino I mentioned. In the, he's not in it much. Just the opening scene, but he's perfectly cast. Also... Tarantino's oh, yeah. just fantastic at getting the most out of his actors. He lets them breathe and work. You know, that's interesting. I just remembered Maya Hawke's in this. Oh, she yeah, is? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's uh, the... Yeah. She had a great... She had a great... From Stranger uh, Things, yeah, obviously. Breakout role in Stranger Things. She's one of the best new characters in that show. And, you know, just... I mean, she's a good actress. She's one of the Manson. She looks... Just, I know her dad yeah. is Ethan Hawke and her mom is Uma Thurman, but it's like, I can't look at her face and just not see a perfect algorithm of... Like, she's an incredible... Like, she's got a great look. And then she has this wonderful cameo where she's one of the Manson, like, like people, and they're coming out to murder. She's like, um, you know, I, I left my knife in the car. I'm going to go back and get... Oh, here are the keys. Great. Uh, thank you. And then she yeah. just like drives off and gets Which, cold of course, feet. is historically accurate. Um, which is like, what a great little cameo for her. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is awesome. And I, it makes me hope. Because, obviously, he did those movies with Uma Thurman. Now he's doing He's got her daughter in a cameo. I wonder if his next movie could be doing something awesome with Maya Hawk. It's that possible. Would, she's obviously showing some acting chops lately. Yeah, so. she's been good. So, um, so I mean, it... it, it this movie almost didn't. Obviously, it is Tarantino, and it has Tarantino elements. Um, it's not very violent though, until the end, really. Um, yeah. You know, when 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 all of a sudden the, when it just explodes into okay, now it's a Tarantino movie. Yeah. You know, yeah. With, with Cliff just bashing yeah. the girl's face into everything she, he can find yeah, and destroys her face with a the dog, dog mauling tax yeah. can of dog food. Um, oh, those shots with the dog food! Oh my god, when he just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, leave it up to Tarantino to make a shot of dog food entertaining. <laughs> Did you think that it was it was less iconic than some of his other movies? I mean, it's hard to touch, you know, um, you know, Pulp Fiction, and, right? You know, yeah. uh, Reservoir Dogs, and some of these movies that you know have just stood the test of time, and you yeah. know, they're considered legendary films of all time. You know, it, it feels maybe a little bit safer. In some of his other films, yeah. it's a little more. Yeah. Even though he's pushing the limits and rewriting history, it's it's kind of a more it's <laughs> yeah. kind of more like simple story a to, bit, to yeah. a certain extent. Um, it's not quite as you know elaborate of a plot. It's it's kind of simple, really. You know, you said yourself, yeah. it's almost like it's short stories in one movie in, mm -hmm. in a sense. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's you know one of his. It's good. I liked it. I don't know, you know, if it's one of his. I, I don't. Where a, would you put it in the power rankings of of his films? Uh, top five. I don't know. Maybe maybe top five. I'd I'd put it in the middle. Yeah. But not like I don't know upper middle maybe. Yeah. But you know, I'd, I'd give the movie a B plus. Okay, you give it a letter grade. I'd give it a B plus. I, yeah. I give it an eight point five out of ten. So I, I really like it. Kind of a B plus. I only give nines though, so I don't give tens. Nine oh. is my highest. So, okay. um, you know, just the slight knock for Margot Robbie being a little underutilized, and it kind of did drag a little bit. So that, yeah. that those would be my only main criticisms. But other than that, I really enjoyed this movie. Isn't it weird though, with that with someone like him though? we actually judge his movies by his other movies. Like, we're like, well, it's a Tarantino. Where, where's the long monologue? Where's, like, the... And it's like, well, that's not fair. Yeah. Like, he doesn't have to do that in any of his movies. Like, And that's why I'd almost say, like, this movie yeah. is a little bit more simple. There's not that many monologues, and there's mm. not these super long, no. drawn-out scenes of dialogue. You know, there's some, but it's not... It's not it's not like the hateful aid. It's not like you know. <laughs> no. It's 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 a little different, I'd say. You know, and and maybe that's because he's trying to pull different aspects from the glory days of Hollywood. It is his tribute, and it very much is that. So, anything else you want to mention about it? I thought the movie had a really um, sly sense of humor about it. Yeah. Like, there's the very dry, like kind of sarcastic, like, for example, like even in the first where they're introducing the characters. Yes, I'm the movie star, and this is my. Like, you know, this is my stunt double. And he's like, oh, so you carry his load? And he's like, 
Yeah, that sounds about right. It's <laughs> yeah. like a little line like that, just mm. very sly. And I always humor. love I love movies that are about movies. You know, like actors playing an actor version of themselves. You know, like actors oh, yeah. playing an actor. Something like, Ocean's like Tropic Eight. Thunder oh, yeah, or Tropic Ocean's Thunder. Eight or oh, like just it's it's just a funny concept when yeah. an actor is playing an actor. You yeah, know? so self commentary. Um, but yeah, Quentin Tarantino. It's a good movie. It's worth watching. Um, yeah, go see it. Go see it. B plus from Mike and an eight point five out of ten for me. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We covered a lot there. A little longer episode today, but, um, you know, lots of good TV and movies are coming out fast and furious. Um, Hobbs and, speaking of fast and furious, Hobbs and Shaw I'm going to go see next week. Uh, Star Wars later this year. Anything else you're looking forward to this year? If you go see Hobbs and Shaw, yeah. tell me about the Christopher Nolan trailer. Well deal. Because apparently Christopher Nolan has a trailer for a new movie, Tenet or Trenet or something. Tenet. I'm, I'm sorry I'm not saying it right, but apparently he's not released it online, but it's at that movie. Hmm. If you go see Hobbs and Shaw, there's a trailer for it in theaters. Cool. Sounds good. There's a lot of good stuff coming out. Yeah. I saw a trailer for 1917, a movie about World War One. That looks really too. good. Also, I really want to see the one about Harriet Tubman. Yeah. I'm excited Harriet. to see that one. So we'll be here, we'll be watching, um, and we'll try and put out pods uh, fairly regularly. We'll get Mike on here again soon. Hopefully we won't have a seven-month gap again. My but bad. Yeah. But until next time, we'll see you at the movies.